Please join me in the prayer for illumination that is found in your bulletin. Awakening God, stir our imagination by the power of your Holy Spirit, that in receiving your word, we might humbly walk toward the new world of mercy and justice you are creating in our midst. A lesson from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Doomed to you who legislate evil, who make laws that make victims, laws that make misery for the poor, that rob my destitute people of dignity, exploiting defenseless widows taking advantage of homeless children. What will you have to say on Judgment Day when Doomsday arrives out of the blue? Who will you get to help you? What good will your money do you? A sorry sight you'll be then, huddled with the prisoners, or just some corpses stacked in the street. Even after all this, God is still angry, his fist raised, ready to hit them again. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We've begun starting church meetings with the scripture for the following week so that we can begin to meditate on its meaning. And in every meeting I've been in this week, I've gotten eyes wide looking at me going, whoa, Pastor Stacy, <laughs> that's an angry passage of scripture. And you're not wrong. There's probably a reason that this particular passage of scripture isn't found in our regular cycles of preaching in our life together. It's a passage that surprises and it stings. So let's just jump right in. Today is week two of our series in Lent, focusing on the themes of Micah 6, 8. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And today we're on week two of justice. Last week, Carol preached an incredible sermon on Jesus flipping over tables in scripture. I urge you to go back and listen if you haven't. This week, we're gonna have the same theme, justice, but we're going to start from the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. When we begin in Genesis, we see a world as it is and as it ought to be. People in right relationship with each other, animals in right relationship with humans. The scene is one of abundance. Paintings of this are usually lush with fruit dripping from all of the trees. Humanity is created then in the image of God, a God of justice. I'm grateful to David St. Clair who reminded me that justice, according to Walter Brueggemann, is to work out what belongs to who and then to return it to them. We as humans are given an entire world to love and to enjoy, and we're given just one rule. 
don't eat of the tree of the garden of good and evil. Guess what? We broke that rule. We eat of the tree and there are consequences. We are unable to stay in paradise and we walk away still in relationship with God, but not in the same way and definitely not in right relationship with each other or the land. In Exodus, we get the story of Moses, whose birth and existence itself is against the law of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, seeing that the Hebrews had grown too numerous, legislates evil. He tells the midwives they must kill all the Hebrew boys under two. And then we get these two amazing midwives, Shifra and Puah, and in these two women, we have an example of people who defy unjust laws so that we get the story of Moses who saves his people from the unjust practice of slavery. In this very act, we learn that there are differences between just and unjust laws, between the justice of God, which demands good treatment of all, and the legislative justice of Pharaoh, which only serves the few at the top. And so the people of God are delivered from slavery and they are given a new set of rules to live by. They are set apart. They are made righteous by the following of the commandments. I found it interesting when studying the Hebrew here. The Hebrew for one who is righteous or who follows the honest path is the word tzaddik. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. T-Z-A-D-D-I-K. And it's closely related to the word for justice, tzedek, T-Z-A-D-E-K, and charity, T-Z-A-D-E-K-H, tzedek. In other words, if we all spoke or read ancient Hebrew, we would see the beauty and the inner joining of this connecting root word and understand better that these three concepts, justice, charity, righteousness are indeed intertwined. The bulk of the rules of the Old Testament intertwine white right worship with right treatment of others. Today's passage, Isaiah 10, 1 through 4, includes a group of protected people that are frequently found in Hebrew scriptures as those deserving special consideration, the poor, the widow, the orphan, in other scripture passages, the sojourner among us, sometimes translated as the foreigner or the immigrant, is often added to this group of three. These are all people groups who would have been disconnected from a family that would have seen to their basic needs. In the time that these texts were written, one commentator notes, this accusation of depriving the poor of their rights is quote, distressingly common. In other words, it's everywhere in the prophets. Repeatedly in the writings of the prophets, we see the people of God being called out, not only for ignoring the plight of these four groups, but doing all that they can to make it even harder for those not of the wealthy or the ruling class to have the necessities of life. The language here and then later in the New Testament around punishment for those who mistreat children is angry 
and harsh. Do you remember in the New Testament? It's better that a millstone be strung around your neck and you tossed into the ocean if you mistreat children. In retrospect, these writers are seeing history in hindsight. They see their culture's mistreatments as one of the main causes of war and ultimately exile. They are away from their homes because they failed to live up to the expectations God had laid out for them. As Christians, we live in the tension of the world as it is and the world as we would like it to be. Each Sunday, we pray, hopefully earnestly, for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we have a hand in making it so. It's so very easy for us at West End to just live in this bubble and only see the good in the world. And yet, we are called to also know the reality of the way things are. Even when our bubble makes it sometimes impossible to see it in our daily life. A friend of mine shared a story on Facebook about a time when something wasn't seen, but it was still really dangerous. So a tire had popped on her car, and it caused her to kind of veer off the road a little bit. She was able to get it back on to the road. Tire was repaired. She said it was largely uneventful, but the incident did, unbeknownst to her, break her tie rod end. I'm saying that slowly because I have no idea what it is. She says that the next week she was driving 65 down Highway 84, and suddenly her wheel turned even though she had not turned the steering wheel. She course corrected. She pulled the car back into the highway, thought, well, that was weird, kept driving, and a little bit further into town, the same thing happens. She gets pulled to the side despite not moving her steering wheel. She took her car into the shop, and the technician could not find anything wrong. She took it to a second shop. They still couldn't find anything wrong. Her stepdad drove the car for just a little bit, and he said... The wheel was facing one way, and then the tire suddenly changed directions while we were driving. Megan said she felt so validated, so she took it to a third shop. The third shop listened, and I learned more about steering setups than I ever have to know again. <laughs> but the gist of this story is this. You couldn't see that broken tie rod end unless the car was moved just right. I am reminded, Megan said, that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Sometimes it really helps to have someone who can at least name the problem, even if they're not able to fix it right then either. Just because we don't see something doesn't mean it's not dangerous. We have to trust the lived experiences of people who are close to injustice. And the best way to hear those lived experiences is to expand your circle and seek out knowledge from people that don't look like you. On the easiest level, this could be reading a book or watching a documentary or following somebody on social media. I can give you a list of these for almost any topic. But openly and honestly, what has changed my heart the most for justice is a combination of reading God's word and forming relationships. You see, relationships matter when it comes to justice. I had a surface level knowledge of why reserving handicapped spaces are important, but then it took my friend 
who is in a wheelchair, to the movies, and he transferred to his chair. And I understood how important it is to keep that space next to a handicapped space unblocked. I took a stroll with him down the streets of Savannah, and it wasn't until that moment that I noticed that there were hardly any street cutouts for him to be able to wheel his chair down and then back up again. And that those little motorized scooters are really bad for people that are trying to navigate the world in a wheelchair. It wasn't until college that I met and I befriended people who lived outside. The church I was part of in Macon, Georgia has a breakfast every Sunday for all. People experiencing homelessness eat at table alongside doctors and lawyers and college kids like me who just needed a little bit of food to make my grocery money stretch a little bit longer. And it was there at that breakfast that I got to know folks like Roosevelt Rowland. Roosevelt could sing a song that would bring you to tears. I also met Bill Blunt, who used to help me talk to students who would come and visit us at the church. And he would always tell them, you know, if you get to know me, you just might like me. And of course, everybody did. He was a likable guy. We had great talks. He studied scripture with me and opened up my understanding of scripture that I would have never had before. If you've ever been in my office, you've seen that I have lots of little tchotchkes and treasures, and a few of those are from Bill. In fact, my hymnal this morning I got from Bill. After he died, we got it out of there, and it's really well-worn because he cared about knowing what was in the hymnal and the songs. Because of these relationships, I understood that we need to advocate for more affordable housing for veterans and for the elderly, for places for them to go during the day to be seen and to belong. And I also understood the ways, both big and small, that they experienced racism and how that racism had actually played a part in their current situation living in a town that only within their lifetime had ended segregation because of Bill and Roosevelt and Charlie. I wanted to fight legislation that criminalized them for sleeping outside, which only served to put fines and jail time that further pushed them back from the goals of employment and housing. They helped me understand scripture They taught me to be deeply appreciative of what I have, but even more importantly, to be deeply appreciative of my ability to share what I had. Because my time at table with these folks are some of my happiest in my ministry. It wasn't until I was in ministry with the people of Iglesia Merodista Nueva Vida that I met and befriended people who had lived experience of being the sojourner in our midst. To hear their stories of struggle in their home country, of violence, of hunger from the agriculture that failed, or of the drug cartel that attempted to recruit their son violently. I came to have a deeper empathy to better understand just why someone would risk their lives and face hatred in the United States to cross the border without papers. 
Through them, I also better understood the biblical story of the Holy Family, fleeing political persecution from Herod, traveling to Egypt with Jesus so that he would have a chance at life. Our experiences with other beloved children of God on this planet help us to see things as they are beneath the noise of the 24-hour news cycle or the politician stump speech. Our faith and our reading of scriptures like the one for today help us to know that God has, from the very beginning, expected care and concern for those who are victims of injustice. God is on the side of the vulnerable. God always acts on their behalf. And the mistreatment of these groups angers God. And because of that mistreatment, the people of God are far from home in exile. But Isaiah doesn't leave us with doom or woe. The prophets of God tend not just to speak truth to power, seeing things as they are, but instead give us a vision of hope. I don't think we can move forward with the work of justice unless we have a vision of that which we're moving towards and the tools that we need to work toward it. So later in the book of Isaiah, we get these beautiful utopic visions of what can happen when we follow the justice of God. I encourage you to read Isaiah 58. God calls the people to true fasting, one that breaks the bonds of injustice. And God says that when you do that, the Lord will guide you continually. God will satisfy your needs in parched places, make your bones strong. You shall be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called repairer of the breach, restorer of streets to live in. I wonder, what might this passage sound like to today's ears? What could being part of the work of justice look like today? And what vision could we cast that could help us see what could happen if we put down the work of hoarding wealth for ourselves? and instead sought solidarity and flourishing for all. So here's the Harwell Die translation of Isaiah 58. You shall send your children to school and not worry if they will be a victim of violence. Your trans family will dance in the streets with joy for being beloved and for being known who they are. You will sit at tables as siblings with those who used to have no food or shelter and we will all eat our fill. You will be known as the repairers of our broken, schismed world. The world's climate disasters will be but a history in our chapter book, and no one will have to leave their home in search of work or food, for their needs will be met with plenty left over. I want to live in that world, one where I have enough and where my neighbor has enough as well. And none of that cost me anything. So how do we get to that beautiful utopic vision from where we are now? That work is the work of justice and mercy. We compassionately tend to the needs we find in front of us. We tend to the stories of those we work alongside, and we begin to move in solidarity with them, being led by them.
We're going to talk about walking humbly in a couple of weeks. But I believe we must humble ourselves in heart and head, using the gifts that we have while listening for ways that our neighbors tell us we have to use our power. Last week, I was at the Day on the Hill for Homelessness, and I was reminded of a powerful truth that came from the Aboriginal women in Australia, most often credited to Lila Watson. She said, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Our liberation is bound up with each other's. We are connected, as Dr. King reminded us, in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. To inch towards God's vision of shalom takes change on every level. But first, we must align our heads and our hearts. But it can't end there. We must show our commitment through our bank accounts, through the church's budget itself, to the ethos and practice of our own workplaces, and changes in the halls of government. Our form of government is different than that of Isaiah's day. But the prophet's warning against legislating evil cuts across all years and all forms of government. And because ours is a representative democracy, we are even more compelled and responsible to speak up and share with those who work for us when we see God's heart broken for our neighbors in need. So we take up our causes, we speak to legislators, we speak through peaceful protest, through prayer vigils, through letters, through cards, through our upcoming days on the hill. We collaborate with others who care about these issues. These problems are so big, and the solutions that we need them will be even bigger and more outside of the box. And public policy has a lot to do and say on this. It's an important note that no party has ever gotten this right. No party has always been aligned with the gospel of Christ, and as a church, we have to stay away from partisan politics. But we are called, certainly, to be involved in the body politic. Last week, Carol reminded us of the witness of John Wesley on the topic of speaking truth to power. The movement that John and Charles started with influence from their mother, Susanna, paired personal piety with public piety. In other words, our faith should compel us to act. In Wesley's day, he spoke out against slavery, stood in the gap when a man was about to be put to death, and visited those in prison. He had a public faith that was a result of inward study of scripture and prayer. He spoke out against unjust policies legislated by those in power because of what he read in scripture. And that legacy of pairing personal and public faith lives on through the work of the General Board of Church and Society in DC. Outside of the entrances this morning are these fact and faith books, and I encourage you to grab one on your way out the door. They are compilations by subject matter of resolutions that were formally voted on by the United Methodist Church. I don't wanna to get too bogged down in details, but I think it matters that what's in this book isn't just the whim of some agency up north. What's in this book is the result of people writing legislation that then gets passed 
by our global body, the general church at general conference. It's the only body that can officially speak for the United Methodist Church. So these resolutions went through committees and then were voted on by a worldwide body made up of equal lay and clergy participation. And they got entered into this book. In other words, to get here, we all have to care about this on a global scale. As you read through this, you won't be able to help but note, the world as it is now is broken. Our reading of scripture and our relationships with others help us to see this, but it also helps us to know what fixes we can work towards together, towards the healing that brings us all closer to the kingdom of God, where God's shalom reigns and all flourish. In the name of the God who gives us the vision, amen.